The SpyCast is hosted by Dr. Vince Houghton, historian and curator at the International Spy Museum. Dr. Houghton specializes in intelligence, diplomatic, and military history with expertise in the late World War II and early Cold War eras. The International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. is the only public museum in the U.S. solely dedicated to espionage. Vince, I really appreciate you joining us for Cleardcast today. Hey, happy to be here. Tell me, how did you get interested and when did you get interested in everything espionage? <laughs> the origin story is kind of convoluted. A lot of it had to do with when I was deployed to the Balkans as part of the United States Army in the 1990s. I saw there what the intelligence community as, you know, as a whole, talking you know, both military intelligence and the civilian side, was doing in an operation that was other than war. Right. So you had a situation in which there you know, wasn't any shooting going on, but there were still very important missions that needed to take place. There was still a reason for us to be there. And a lot of it really came down to what the intelligence groups were doing, whether that was finding war criminals or you know, finding mass graves or just kind of paying attention to the environment that was taking place over there. And so that kind of spurred my interest a little bit in what the IC was doing. I had always had an interest in nuclear weapons, and that's kind of one of these weird things that kind of came together. I, I was 10 years old, and I read a book by a guy named Richard Rhodes called The Making the Atomic Bomb, which spurred on an interest in nuclear weapons. And so when I was able to combine the two, uh, which I didn't do till grad school, when I was able to combine the two, looking at intelligence, World War II, early Cold War, focus on nuclear weapons and science and technology, it kind of all just came together. 10 years old, that's an early start for nuclear weapons, my friend. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean... I still did all the other normal kid stuff. It's just uh, I kind of got sucked in to the the idea that you had a weapon system that kind of the most powerful weapon the world has ever created, yet it kept the peace for decades and decades. And, and as a 10-year-old, I didn't really understand the concept of things being contradictory in ideas, but something stuck in me like that's just weird. For whatever reason, I never gave that up. And we're talking about now, you know, it lasted 30, now it's been 30 plus years that Kind of, I've been fascinated with these these concepts and ideas that started when I was a little kid. So, how long have you been at the Spy Museum? And uh, tell us a little bit about your role there. Yeah, so I've been at the museum. I'm the, I'm the longest serving historian now. So I just oh, wow. passed the, the previous mark. I've been there for six and a half years. Came there in '04. The role is interesting in that we're really not sure what it is yet. Uh, mainly because the entire time I've been there, we've been developing the new museum. Uh, which opened last year, last May, just reopened now, you know, amid all the COVID craziness. But for the most part, I hit the ground running. and you know, A lot of it was coming in and working on content for the new museum. So it's only been about six or seven months that I've not had to think about content for a new museum and like, what is my normal job, a quote, normal day of a historian curator. And we really kind of haven't figured that out yet, just because it's been so long since we've had normal days. And then, of course, we got very close to saying, okay, this is kind of my role. And then everything shut down. So, you know, in a nutshell, I'm the, I'm the subject matter expert for the museum. I come with the background and, and whenever there's a question about subject matter, whenever there's a press inquiry, whenever there is the History Channel wants to do something with us. It's usually me. Obviously, I run our podcast. The long and the short of it is subject matter expertise is what I bring to the table. I'm an intelligence uh, junkie myself. I'm a former, excuse me, intelligence recruiter. So I'm interested to hear your opinion. So obviously, you know, tech and cyber and sort of the obvious suspects. 
have changed intelligence and espionage and, you know, all of those buzzwords over the last few decades plus. But what other things in your expertise has really changed at the core intelligence and espionage? I'm not going to be contrarian. I would say that, that, that things have changed a lot less than we think. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we're looking at methodology changes, certainly. You're looking at, you know, the, the way we do things, but, but kind of foundationally, it's the same as it's been for thousands of years, right? Trying to bring in information that we can figure out what it means and pass along to people that can do something with it. You know, I think where you have any kind of changes in that process, and I'm not going to use the word intelligence cycle, although your, your listeners all certainly know what I mean by that, you know, the changes all, along the way are kind of methodology, how we do this. Until recently, and I, and I think that one of the key issues that we have to deal with now is the first two steps have always been relatively straightforward. You collect the information, you analyze the information. And then passing along to policymakers, really, the difficulty that came with that was you might have dumb policymakers, or let's use the word uneducated in the field that you're talking about. You may have policymakers that are they're lawyers or they're business people and you're trying to explain uranium enrichment to them, and it's sort of difficult to do. You know, or you have military leadership that doesn't quite understand how new technology has changed the world. All these problems are the same for CIA today as they were in the Roman Empire. You, know, you, you don't have dramatic differences yet. Nuts and bolts and the, the weeds and the details might be different, but it's the same problems that they're having. What I would say is different is, and this is something that we, you know, is very recent, is the politicization of that last step. And the, the influence of politics on intelligence, more than technology, I would argue, is the biggest thing that is the thing standing in the way of agencies doing the, their best work. You've always had a modicum of this, you know, intelligence taskings always kind of had a little bit of the political bent of whoever was asking for the information. But the idea of the agencies themselves and the intelligence itself being politicized is something that I think is, is newer than anything else that we might think of. I mean, look, I mean, cyber, of course, is important, but to me, again, it's just a methodology. It's not necessarily a, a game-changing, a paradigm-shifting technology that changes the way we do it at a fundamental level. But when you are introducing something like the politicization of what is real, what is information, what is real versus fake, and, it, and it's not because of your ability to go back and, and make sure this information is true or to check your sources. It's only because of whatever political party you're from. That's a real problem. And I think that's something that we haven't really appreciated, how that this is not just because of the current administration. This is because it has now become part of the kind of cost of doing business in the intelligence world. And I'm not sure we can put that genie back in the bottle challenging the folks asking for this intelligence. That's great advice. Telling them what they don't want to hear and opening up a conversation. So what other advice would you offer folks who might be interested just entering the intelligence arena or, you know, looking to switch and move into an intelligence career? The two kind of pieces of advice, one for the brand newbies and then one for anyone who is in any kind of even middle management leadership position. For the newbies, don't be afraid to say you don't know. I think that we come, especially people coming out of college or right out of the business world, you know, where I don't know is the worst thing you can possibly say, where it's your job to know stuff. In the intelligence world, it's your job to find out as much as you possibly can about a particular issue. But sometimes I don't know is okay, because then you, by identifying your gaps in intelligence, you actually are accomplishing something. You're actually saying, okay, look, 
here's what I, I need to go and get more information about. You know, if we knew everything, we wouldn't need these intelligence agencies. And so you don't want to say that every single time you're asked a question because then you clearly are not in the right business. Don't make stuff up and be confident that your leadership, and this isn't always easy, especially for new, be confident that your leadership has been in your position before and understands that it does take courage to say, I don't know. Now, on the middle management side, I, I think that understanding that your subordinates may fail, and that's okay, because if they're not failing, it means they're playing it safe and not really doing their jobs, right? The job is to push the outside of the envelope. The job is to do everything you possibly can to keep your country safe. And so if you're just, if you're succeeding in everything that you're doing, then you're not trying hard enough. You're not being aggressive enough. You're not pushing the outside of the envelope. So you're going to fail. But middle management, you have to allow your people to fail without, you know, ending their careers or without, you know, chewing them out because that's actually how we get to the real success stories down the road. And so, you know, failure should be an option. Failure should be something that we're not afraid of, both as a management position, but also as a new person. And that failure in that case is, look, I just don't know. Like, but I will find out. Give me the chance and I will find out. And so that to me is so different from the academic world, of course, where anyone going into the community, of course, likely had great A's or really good grades, or they hadn't failed anything academically in their whole life. Or if they're coming from the business world or somewhere like law school in the legal world, those three words, I don't know, is not something that's usually part of their lexicon. Well, it needs to be because the intelligence world is all gray area, is all unknowables, is all uncertainty. And these are things that people have to get comfortable with. Everyone is not made that way, right? If you're someone that's just not comfortable with not knowing everything, then the intel world is not right for you. That's my advice to throw it in that direction. That's a key piece of advice because I can't tell you, I mean, just even as a past recruiter, I'm not equating a recruiter to an actual intelligence analyst, but having the courage to say, I don't know, but I will try to find out that you're exactly right. People need to be comfortable in such a great area like intelligence. So for the folks that might be interested in moving into the intelligence field, we all know the usual suspects. I was wondering if there were any, I'm always interested in the smaller agencies yep. folks don't know about. So are there any that you could speak to today for us? My background is science and technology. And so the S&T, we're talking about nuclear weapons, the DOE, the Department of Energy. Department of Energy has some of the most interesting jobs out there. You know, so if you are a scientist, if you, you're a science major in college, if you've got a grad degree in science, think of the DOE, the Department of Energy, because you're looking at doing counterintelligence for the nuclear weapons platforms out there, for the labs. You're talking about the national lab system where some of the most closely guarded secrets are held. Those are things that are targets of foreign adversaries. And so doing CI work for them is important. You also have places like the Treasury Department, the financial intelligence guys. If you think accountants don't have a place in the intelligence community, these are some of the most important people when we are tracking terrorist finance. If you can't fund yourself, I don't care how much you hate America, if you can't fund yourself with millions of dollars in most cases, then you don't have any kind of high-level terrorist organization. But if you can track that money, then we can catch bad guys. And there's a lot of times where we get to some of these top terrorists around the world by tracking their financial, following the money, right? As cliched as that is. And these are the guys at Treasury doing that. Plus, if you really want to start messing with our adversaries, they're also the ones that figure out who to sanction. They're pulling in economic information 
and financial information from Putin's oligarchs and, and people around the world and figuring out where to squeeze if we really want to make somebody hurt. So those are some of the two lesser known ones. And certainly the military, each branch has civilians who work within whether it's A2 in the, in the Air Force or O&I or, or G2 in the Army and you know, even Coast Guard intelligence, as much as they get made fun of, they have civilians who work for them that do extraordinarily interesting work through linguistics or code breaking or straightforward human intelligence. The DOD is really kind of starting to come back into what is considered usually CIA's purview, and that's human intelligence, doing some really interesting work. And so it's almost like if you think of the law enforcement side, one of the pieces of advice that I got that I didn't follow and I didn't, because I didn't go that direction was in the 1990s when I was in college and I just aged myself, everybody wanted to be in the FBI, right? This is the, you know, the, the FBI was chasing down Tim McVeigh and, you know, all this domestic terrorism. And it's kind of a cool place to be. Everyone was applying to be in the FBI. So it was, it was the time when they were basically accepting nobody. In some cases, people were saying, all right, go to the Border Patrol, go join Customs, go join some of these different organizations that do federal government law enforcement. And then if you're there a couple of years, it's much easier to laterally transfer into the FBI. If you're dying to be at CIA, but they just aren't taking you because you don't speak 15 languages and, you know, and you just, <laughs> there's just too many applicants. Some of these other agencies, I'm not saying they're worse. I'm not equating them to, to you know, lesser agencies, but I'm saying it's much, 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 much. And you know that you know this better than anyone. Easier to transfer from one government job with a top secret SCI clearance to another government job with a top secret SCI clearance once you're in the door. And so, you know, just basically getting your foot into the universe is, is one of the more effective ways to get a job at one of these big agencies that it's not always easy to come in off from the door. A lot of folks who are anxious in the job market or they're trying to enter the field of intelligence they do have these horse blinders on where, you know, they want to work at the CIA and they want to be a super spy. And they don't think, though, you know, OK, let's take a look at some of these other agencies or maybe contractors that have openings where I can get my foot in the door. So that, that's a great thing to mention for the folks who might be listening who are in that candidate seeking group. And, well, and there's and just last thing, there's very little that CIA does that isn't done somewhere else. And what I mean by that is if you want to be on the ground in a foreign country in civilian clothes recruiting people to give us information. There are about four or five agencies that are doing that, right? You know, if you want to do top secret research work into foreign technology or other things, there's about eight agencies that are doing that, right? So it's gotten to the point now where there is so much overlap, where DIA is doing a lot of humans, where you know, other agencies are doing things that traditionally would be considered, if you're not going into CIA, you're not doing this kind of stuff. That's not the case anymore. Sure. The, an, another great point. Um, I, I'm interested to hear, though, from your podcast. I'm hoping you'll give me something juicy here, but no pressure. Um, <laughs> out of all of the, uh, you know, ex-spies, intelligence experts or, you know, espionage folks that you've interviewed, who has been the most interesting and why? I take immense and somewhat perverse pleasure in surprising people with questions. Uh -huh. And, and I'm, a, I'm an obsessive researcher. One of the things that I try to do is I try to pull a question, especially for some of the senior personnel that they have either never heard before or just they're surprised that I pulled up, I found something of theirs that they wrote when they were 20. And for me, it's, it's psychological in many respects is that it kind of knocks them out of their comfort zone and it gets them from going from kind of giving me 
bullet pointed, this is the answer I've given a hundred times before, actually putting some thought into what they're doing. And actually I, I did this back to back where there's a time where we tape and then release the podcast. The spycast is not like not done live. So there's sometimes when we'll record four or five podcasts in a week and then like roll them out over the next month. Well, there was one day where the gods were shining on me and I had David Petraeus and Mike Hayden coming in on the same day, about two hours apart. So talking, you know, heavy hitters coming in. And for whatever reason, I was feeling particularly frisky that day. And I just wanted to get them off their comfort zone. And I had been actually reading David Petraeus's PhD dissertation from Princeton. And, and so that's, like I said, obsessively prepared. He started, I asked him about it. And he's like, I can't believe you read that. He, we went off topic and went off book and really started talking about some of his conclusions that came out of this PhD that he wrote decades ago. You could actually see him just relax. You know, and this is, again, you know, former CI director, former four-star head of everything in the universe, David Treas, who had been, <laughs> before his scandal, had been being groomed for president, starting very stiff as he's talking to somebody he doesn't know. But then just, you can see them just loosening up when they start talking about intellectual issues and things like that they just hadn't thought that they were going to be talking about. And then someone like Michael Hayden, I just, I caught him off guard by talking about the Steelers. He's a diehard <laughs> Pittsburgh Steelers fan and just got him just kind of chuckling and telling jokes and smiling. And then all of a sudden you can start asking questions with a little bit of an edge to them because there's a little bit of, there's a level of trust there between you because it's kind of an icebreaker. You broke in the ice. And so that was a particularly good day for me because I just, I got two people that you know, I'm a, I'm a former NCO in the Army, right? So I'm sitting across from two former four-star generals. They're like, call me Mike or, you know, all that. And it's like, no, no, dude, I'm not. I'm sorry. You're, not only are you a four-star general, but you're the former director of CIA and NSA. I'm not going to call you Mike. I mean, now, now he's actually a board member of the museum. I know his, he and his wife very well. I still don't call him Mike, but I know him a lot better than I did at the time. But it was just, it could have been intimidating. But I actually, I turned it around on them to a degree where I, I caught them off guard. You know, I kind of put them almost at, in a little bit of a state of unease because they weren't just kind of doing the same interview they had done before. You know, and that's kind of the advice I give to anyone kind of starting out is be, know more about your subject than they know about themselves. Because, you know, that's most people who you're going to want to talk to and want to interview have done it so many times. They've talked you know, done so many interviews, they've done so many talks, so many presentations, so many lectures, and they can get kind of robotic. I noticed I, I had a, a book come out last year and I did dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews for it. I wasn't even thinking by the, you know, the end of it. I was, it was just the same answers I'd given over and over and over again. And you want to get someone out of that comfort zone because that's what makes for a really interesting conversation. Instead of talking with a robot, I'm going to take that right. piece of advice. Um, that's that's great, though. Uh, and being in the podcast host seat, I've only done one podcast and who someone interviewed me. But being in the host seat is a lot more fun, I would say. Well, so, I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So last question for you, sir. You did mention that you were an NCO in the Army. So tell me, um, what was your favorite location that you were stationed at? Well, sadly, I, I spent the vast majority of my time, I say sadly, and you're going to hear why in a second. I spent the vast majority of my time stationed at Fort Hood in the middle of nowhere in Central Texas. We didn't spend a lot of time there because you know, the 1st Cavalry Division tend to be deployed. I actually got the opportunity to go fight forest fires in Montana while I was a member of the first CAV. Summer of 2000, 
the Western United States was essentially burning to the ground and, and they basically run out of all the real firefighters. President Clinton used you know, the same executive powers that were used to send troops into Washington, D.C. in the last couple of weeks to send us to Montana to help the forest fire effort. And it was just extraordinarily different. It was just most of the time when, when you're in the military, you're deployed overseas and you're helping people overseas, right? You're, you're in a position where the mission tends to be you can at least take some solace out of the fact that you are helping people. Most of our missions do have some kind of positive outcome, whether you're helping Iraqis, you're helping Afghans, you're, you're helping others around the world. Like for me in the Balkans, that was nice. It was nice to kind of be there and make sure people weren't massacring each other. It's not often unless you're in a National Guards person, if you're in the regular army, that you actually are helping Americans. And we were in a situation where we were able to, you know, save towns and save houses and others doing something that we really weren't trained to do, right? I was trained to make fires, not put them out. I, you know, I was trained to, trained to sit and blow things up and not you know, prevent them from, from taking out houses. It was a nice respite. And, and the greatest part about it is because it was so physically demanding, we had basically had to climb a mountain before you could actually fight the fire all day. We were taking in about six or 7,000 calories a day and still losing weight. That's insane. Yeah, we were eating every about hour. You eat basically about a thousand calories an hour because you were just constantly burning. And I came back 15 pounds lighter than when I went. And it was just, oh, it's glorious, right? I mean, it's literally eat anything you want and you have to eat anything because you keep up that energy. So for someone who's loved to eat since he was a baby, um, <laughs> yeah. That was a favorite place of mine. Well, so I'm imagining, did you have to wear, you know, the heavy duty firefighting gear climbing up this mountain before you're fighting a fire? So it's not the full, it's not like you're you're going to fight a, a house fire where you've got, the, you know, the whole big boots and stuff. But you are wearing, you're basically wearing Nomex like you would if you were going in a tank. Like we actually wore Nomex in the tank. It just was bright yellow and not and not grain so you could be spotted in the forest. But you had a helmet, you had a backpack on where you had to kind of bring stuff in, whether it's water or gear, other things like that. So it wasn't all that easy. Plus you're carrying tools to the top of the mountain. Or, you know, my buddy had a chainsaw that he had to carry every single time to the top of the mountain. And I had a huge, an axe pick thing called a Pulaski that was, that probably weighed about 20 pounds. It's not easy. You got these big heavy boots on also. And that's really one of the great things about the calorie burning uh, was that you weren't doing it in PT, right? It wasn't like you're running 10 miles with a division run. You're doing something that actually counts. Right? It makes a difference. So we, we whine and groan because that is the right of every person in the military to bitch and whine. But it, at the end of the day, we actually understood we were doing something good. That's a wonderful story, Vince. I really appreciate you sharing that with me today. Um, but that's going to finish us up. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.